If you've got your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, use your smartphone. Go to the Bible app. Every once in a while, I've got somebody from this church that will say, Pastor, is there a good Bible app out there? And I'm thinking, how have you not heard about that on Sundays? It's called the YouVersion Bible app. You can follow along with our sermon notes. You can post your social media straight from there. Do Bible studies on there. It's, it's really a fantastic app. It's absolutely free. I get no money from pumping their stuff. So um, excited about Thanksgiving this week. Why? Because we get to eat turkey. And I've got a J.P. Dorsey, who is a friend of our congregation, he preaches here once a year. In fact, he'll be preaching next year, March 1st. Uh, does not like Thanksgiving, which has almost got him de-invited from K-First a few times. Um, how do you not like Thanksgiving? Man, that, that kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Um, but I'm excited about what, what this week has in store. In fact, um, earlier this week, I got a text from a longtime friend. Uh, one of the beauties of going to Bible college is you have friends that are just sent out all over the world, and uh, I love just reconnecting with them. And a friend of mine just so happened to be in perhaps my top bucket list spot in the entire nation. And so I don't know where I was. I just remember I was with my son Ethan, and I get a text, and it's just one picture. And it was a picture that made me angry and happy at the same time. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. What was the picture? Um, my friend is in Yosemite National Park. He's in the Yosemite Valley, and the picture is of the highest peak, and it's called El Capitan. And my bucket list thing is to go there and to climb two pitches on El Cap, to go down the valley, do two pitches on Half Dome, which I think is my son's favorite peak. And so, like, we're zooming in, and we're looking at climbers on the wall. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited because this is one of my favorite spots in the nation uh, that I've yet to be, go to. I'm going to go to that. And, and it's 3,000 feet tall. Pastor, are you going to climb the 3,000? I'm just going to say yes, even though don't believe it. I probably won't do that whatsoever. I just got a dream of staying the night on the side of the mountain because they've got these tents called portal ledges where you sleep about 1,000 or 2,000 feet up in the air. Oh, it's like, that's bucket list stuff right there. Some of you are getting gray hair thinking about that. And for those that deal in life insurance, you're going to talk to my wife after the service most likely. Um, but I, I, I love mountains. And it's more than climbing. There's something calming um, about being around the mountains. I love the mountains. In fact, this week when we drive to Virginia to have Thanksgiving with my wife's side, uh, we will pull into the subdivision where my brother-in-law lives in Virginia, and he lives in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Love them. Um, 2003, got to go to Alaska, took uh, my youth group for an, a mission trip. We hiked up to Flat Top Mountain, and we looked out on the clearest day imaginable, and we saw Mount McKinley, which was 160 miles away. That's how big Mount McKinley is. It's like seeing something in Toledo from Kalamazoo. That's how big this thing is. Just something about mountains that just... It, Settles something in me. It, 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 at the same time, it excites me. It calm, I just love, I love the mountains. Um, why are we talking about that? Because when we're talking about the book of Philippians, when I think about Philippians, specifically chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, if I were to say these are the mountain ranges of Scripture, these are the Mount McKinley's of Scripture, this chapter and specifically these verses would be what I would call the Mount McKinley um, of Scripture in terms of the height. Uh, it, it's the El Cap of Scripture in terms of notoriety and, and, and ways to engage it. There's something about this verse that if you've never read this, this would be an amazing Scripture to not just read but, but, but to memorize. In fact, the, it, the early church used to utilize these 
verses as hymns or as poems to recite or to sing to. That's how amazing and how deep these scriptures are. Um, if, you, if any of you remember doing memory verses as a kid, you remember doing memory verses where they give you a verse and you come back the next week to your Sunday school teacher, you say the verse, you get candy that they say don't eat during Sunday school, eat it when you're with your parents, which was, you know, sounds demonic uh, until you're a teacher and you just smile later when they leave your class and they're sugared up for their kids. It's wonderful. Um, this is that verse you want to memorize because it just has so much to it. In fact, these verses is probably the most complete, concise way to describe who Jesus is and what he was doing. So Philippians chapter 2, verse um, 5, through tw- 5 through 11. And again, if you did not pick up your scripture journals, we've got them available in the lobby. They're three bucks per, no money, just take one, we don't care. But they're ways that we're encouraging people to study. So if, first of all, it says in verse 5, have this mind among you, which was yours in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he entered himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you feel the depth in this? And if, if you can't find anything to say amen to, to any of this, then at least underneath verse 10, that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Thank you. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is a... This thing should, it should almost shake the, the foundations of you, who you are as a believer because this is our foundation. Is the description of Jesus is God incarnate. God become flesh. He came, he died, he rose again, and he's exalted forevermore. This scripture is a mountain range in scripture. It is that thing that, that we can look to and just get the most concise, accurate description of who Jesus is and what he was up to. And this is what Paul wanted to get into the mindset of the Philippians because he knew if he can get them to think like Jesus and to have the same mind as Jesus, it would do more than just do something inside here and inside here. It would produce something out here, which is why he says in verse 5, I want you to have the same mind of Jesus. That word same mind is just the... It's Greek for mindset. I want you to have this mindset. I want you to have this attitude. I want you to have this mode of life. Because the idea is, is if I can, Paul says, if I can get Christ-like thinking, then I can get Christ-like living. And that, to me, could be a simple main point for the whole message in and of itself. That let Christ's thinking begin to get reflected in our living. We need that Christ-like thinking, the invitation of Christ-like thinking, because it gets reflected in the way that we live. And I don't know if you've ever asked the question, I wonder what Jesus was thinking about in life when he was here for 33 years. What was the mind of Jesus like? This is the scripture that helps you understand the mind, the attitude of Jesus. We're given insight on how to change our thinking, because I wrote this down, that a joyful life comes with a change of thinking. There are times in my life that I couldn't find joy and, and I've had to learn that finding joy was not changing what was on the outward. I had to change joy on the inside. And a change of thinking 
changes into joyful living. I love what uh, this says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 in the King James. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. The idea that if we have right thinking, it develops into right living. Now, I've had people argue. I've had somebody sit in my office say, well, millennials, I love how they speak generally. Millennials, they all, we all believe that right living creates right thinking. But you have to understand something that you can't actually act unless it comes from the brain. And so we, have, we can have actions that help shape some thinking, but our original thinking creates actions. Actions can shape the thinking, but it begins with where we are at on the interior. And so Paul is trying to help the, the Philippian church get an understanding of the humility, the mindset, the attitude of the humility of Jesus. Because if we as the body of Christ could catch that on the inside, imagine what that would translate in the way that we live with the people around. So we're going to talk about just three areas of humility that Christ showed, that mindset of humility. And so if you're taking notes, it's going to be a simple one, two, three for you. Some, some of you love the one, two, three thing. One, two, three in the poem. Set us out, Pastor Dave. No poems today. I apologize for that. So number one, would you write this down? Write down Jesus' humility in heaven. Jesus, look at his humility in heaven. Verse six says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, let's kind of break this down a little bit. The, the word form, if you have the New Living Translation, uh, I should say the New International Version, it's the word uh, nature. Though he was the nature of God. I really like that translation. The ESV, which is our scripture journals, um, is the form of God. The Greek word there is a word that we get the word essence or the core. At his core, he is God. Because when you talk about the core of somebody, you're talking about who they are internally. At their core, their core is this. At their core, I have no, there's some of you in this room, when I see you at your core, you're just a servant. There's some of you individuals at your core, you're just a joyful person. There's maybe one or two of you at your core, you might be a little grouchy all the time. I'm not going to point fingers at all, but there's a few of you in here. I'll let you claim that for yourself. Uh, there's a few of us that at the core, we are this type of person. But the reality is, with Jesus at his core, his essence is he is God. That's what verse 6 is saying. Jesus is God. That's the essence of who he is. Colossians chapter 1, I believe it's verses 16 uh, through 18, it says that Jesus in this world was formed by Jesus and Jesus holds it all together. You know the beautiful thing about that verse is that ties into the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 which says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then the spirit of God was hovering above the waters so we see the Father and we see the Spirit and we're like in the Trinity where's Jesus? Well Colossians clues us in that Jesus was there. He is God and he breathed everything into being and he holds it all together. They say, scientists will talk about the four main elements of everything. There's, um, there's the super nuclear power, or sorry, super nuclear force. There's weak force. There's um, magnetic force. And then there's one more that I'm blanking out. I probably should look at my notes so I look a little bit more intelligent this morning. Um, electromagnet, uh, gravity, electromagnetism, I can't even say it, and weak force. But it's the strong nuclear force that gets pointed out. Why? Because when it comes to our atoms our molecules, that's the thing that keeps everything together. That way, when you stand up and then you walk out today, that you just don't fall apart and just go into a million, billion little atoms everywhere. It's that super nuclear force that brings 
everything together. It keeps life together. But what I love about Colossians chapter 1 and what I love about the fact of who Jesus is, as scripture says, that he not just creates, but he keeps things together. I'm so thankful that we've got a Savior that helps keep things together. That when life is breaking apart and life is falling apart, when things happen that we're so out of our control, or even when we've made a mess of our own lives, that we've got a God that comes to not just redeem us, but he can bring our lives back together. When it seems like the storms of this world want to break us up, we've got a God that stands in our life and says, peace, be still. He brings everything together. I'm so thankful we've got a God like that in our life, that he just doesn't just put you together and send you on your merry way to deal with life by yourself. Scripture says he's Emmanuel, God with us. He keeps your life together. And that's why we've got to keep our trust, keep our lives close to him, because the closer we stay to him, it doesn't mean life doesn't happen, but we've got some. We've got the presence of one that will keep our lives together. He's what keeps our marriages together. He's what keeps our sanity together with raising our kids. Got a lot of parents on my left side. He's the one that brings it together. Now the scripture says this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasp, um, the Greek word means he didn't cling to it. He didn't cling to that. He didn't cling to that. Now the scripture doesn't mean that he didn't see himself as equal to God, but it did mean that he didn't walk with entitlement. That when the Trinity who exists, the three in one. We did a series, I think two years ago, called Three-ish. I would love to re-preach that series. That was so fun to preach on the Trinity. But the Son was sent by the Father. There's a lot of theology in that. And the Son didn't say, I'm not going down to them. Have you seen them? Have you seen the lions play? Have you seen what's going on? Have you seen, there was complete humility. And what the scripture is saying, it's not saying that Jesus wasn't God. It's just saying that he did not cling. He did not cling to the position saying, I'm not going down because this is who I am. I'm too good for this. I'm too, I'm too much God for this. That Let them deal with it by themselves. He didn't cling to that because he came down to us and became like us and submitted himself to what we are available to. He showed his humility in heaven. I wrote it this way, because I'm like, how do you practically, how do you make something practical out of this point? And so this is what I wrote this week. That life is not about the position of our lives, but the posture of our hearts. Life is not about the position. And when I talk about the position of our lives, I'm, I'm talking about titles. I'm talking about finances. I'm talking about who we are over and the authority and the networking and the clout that we think that we can carry and who we're connected to and, and what type of notoriety that we can get. That life is not about getting ourselves in a better position over people or in a better position in the lives of people or a better social media presence so we get more likes than everybody else. Life is not about getting in a better position. Life is about a posture. And it's posturing ourselves humbly before the Lord, singing songs like, Lord, my heart is an open space. I'm yours. That's what Jesus shows us. I mean, look at the Last Supper. The Last Supper where Jesus is in the night of his betrayal. He literally has hours left 
to his life. And the disciples, the people that are closest to him, they're not even really listening to him. They're so busy arguing over who has a better position. So when they argued about position, you know what Jesus showed them? Jesus showed them a posture. As he began to wash feet of one individual who would betray, 11 individuals who would abandon, one of which would deny him publicly three times. And he chose to serve. There's a mindset of humility. And when we walk in that mindset of humility, there's joy present. I gotta keep moving. Number two, if you're a note taker, number two, we see Jesus' humility in becoming a man. Jesus' humility in becoming a man. Verse seven, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now notice, verse six, we've got the word form. Verse seven, we've got the word form. It's the same word. He took on the physical essence of a human being. This is what, what it means. Without forfeiting his deity, he emptied himself of his deity. And let me say it a little bit differently. He set aside in a moment the, div the divine prerogatives of power. The privileges, the prerogatives of power, he set that aside and he became like us. What does it mean to set aside the divine prerogatives of power? What does that truly mean to set aside the divine um, approach and what he had as God? I wrote down three things. He gave up his heavenly glory and majesty. He gave up his heavenly glory in the moment. Scripture says in John chapter 1 verse 14 that the word became, do you know the word? Flesh. The word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. He set aside, it's a Latin called prostantheon, prostantheon. It's Latin for face-to-face. -face. He set aside face-to-faceness with God the Father, which is why we see so often in Scripture that he would get up early in the morning and seek the Father's face. John chapter 17, I want to say it's verse 5, where he is praying what's called the high priestly prayer. And he said, Lord, restore to me the glory that you and I had together before the world began. He set it all aside. He was missing that undiminished union and connection and he became flesh and bone like us, which means he thirsted like you and I thirst. He hungered like you and I hungered. He got tired like you and I tired, got tired. He took naps like you and I should take naps. I had a kid say amen. Somebody raised that child correct. Goodness gracious. It's human as it got. That's what he took on for us. The second thing about giving up his privileges and prerogatives is he gave up his own independent authority and power. This is why he says in John chapter 5, verse 30, he says, I cannot do anything on my own. Acts chapter 10 uh, says this, that Jesus couldn't do anything on his own power, but he needed the Holy Spirit. Now, some of y'all are saying, well, pastor, I read that Jesus raised people from the dead, that he healed people, that he set people free, that he released people from demonic possession. What about all the miracles, pastor? Why, why, why? He had power, and I would say absolutely he did. But how did he receive power? He was given power from the Father through the Holy Spirit. You know what Jesus shows us? Jesus shows us how we can live life underneath the power of the Spirit of God. And that's why Jesus says, when I go away, I'm not going to leave you because I'm going to send you what I have, and not only am I going to send that to you, greater works are you going to do. That's powerful. When we humble ourselves, and we ask, God fills us. Jesus also gave up his eternal riches. Scripture says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That means he owns everything. And have you ever noticed Jesus didn't own anything? 
He borrowed everything. I had a friend of Bible college like that. His name is Jack. Four years of Bible college, Jack bought a total of three books. Four years, he got a BA, so we're like, he must have been really smart. I saw Jack's grades. I studied with Jack. Jack was not a genius. Neither was your pastor. Three books in four years. How do you do that? Because he got people to either give him or let him borrow books. It, he's, like, yeah, you're like, he's smart. I'm like, kind of was. I remember how much. Ever, ever buy a book in college that was like 70 bucks, and then the next year, like the fourth edition came, and you bought the third edition, and you can't sell it for anything? Welcome to my Bible college. That's the way it was. Jesus borrowed. He borrowed a manger. He borrowed homes to stay in. In the book of John, I want to say it's John chapter 7, um, where it says the disciples went off to each their own home, and Jesus went off in the wilderness to pray. Why did Jesus go into the wilderness? He had no home. You know what's the coolest thing about it? Is he borrowed a tomb. Why? Because he didn't need it. <laughs> Some of you are like, never thought about that. It was all borrowed. I remember a man came to him and wanted to follow him. He said, listen, sell everything you have. But guess what? The foxes, they have holes. The birds, they have nests. But the son of man, he ain't got nothing. That's a different translation. But he has no place to lay his head, the scripture says. He borrowed everything. Jesus set it all aside. In, not to become a notoriety person for the sake of getting notoriety. He came to connect with us. He came to be amongst us. He came to be with us. And what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, that he is a high priest that came to be flesh so he can sympathize with us. That encourages me to know that when I'm hurting, that Jesus understands. That when I have been betrayed, Jesus understands. That when someone has broken my heart, Jesus understands. This past week I lost, dang it, I lost one of my groomsmen to COVID this week. Four, he's turning 44 in a couple weeks. And we celebrated one of the weirdest dudes you've ever met in your life. And he loved Jesus more than anybody I know. I love Jason so much. And you know what? I'm at the funeral and somebody brought up the words, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the entire scripture out of Gen um, John chapter 11. And that reminds me that Jesus was, the word became flesh so he can learn what it means to lose somebody that you love. Jesus understands. And the humanity that he embraced, the humility he showed to become man, came so he can actually serve us better. That blows my mind. God became flesh so he can actually serve us better. Blows my mind. Number three, lastly, Jesus' humility in death. He showed humility in heaven. He showed humility in becoming man. And he showed humility in death. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think the greatest mark of godliness is obedience to Jesus. The greatest mark to, God, to following Jesus is, is not the Christian t-shirts or anything like that. And I believe, I love them, I wear them. Uh, I saw a guy at the climbing gym last night was wearing one from the 90s and says, his pain, your gain. It was Samson's gym t-shirt. Anybody remember those from the 90s? Oh my gosh, I just, had, I wanted to hug him yesterday. I had to, I talked his ear off. I think he thinks I'm a creeper. Um, when I think about the marks of Jesus and following Jesus, it's obedience. 
It's following him and being obedient. You may say, well, Jesus sometimes challenges me to do things that I don't want to do. You know what? I'm just going to tell you this. Jesus followed the Father even in things that he did not want to do. And if you don't agree, you have not read the Gospels thoroughly. Because you need to look no further than the Garden of Gethsemane. I've been there in Israel. I've, I've been in the place where Jesus prayed these type of words. God, I know you want me to do this, but if it's possible... Can this be a different way? If it's possible. There are times that Jesus is going to ask you to do things that you don't want to do. Why? Because he's got a greater plan. And it's there in the Garden of Gethsemane that we see this beautiful, almost crushing, taking place internally. That's what the word Gethsemane means. It means the place of pressing. It was an olive forest. It was an olive place where, where you can pluck olive branches and pull the fruit off and crush it and get olive oil. And there was a place of pressing. Olives were pressed and all of a sudden the, the, the oil would flow out. And in that place Jesus was being pressed by the weight of everything that was going to happen. The weight of the sin he was going to take on. The weight of the pain that he was going to endure. And what began to flow out of the place of Gethsemane. Yes it was a cry out to the Father that said God I don't really want to do this but Lord it's what you want so let your will be done. And when we walk in obedience, the blessing of God follows. The blessing of God follows. You see, humility is when we set aside what we want and we grab a hold of what God wants. My, hum my prayer of humility over the years has always been the same. It's, Lord, I want your will even before I know what your will is. I challenge you to pray that this week. Some of you aren't going to like that prayer because like, I just want to know everything that the Lord is going to do so that I know, so, so I know to do it. That's not what you're really saying. You're really saying, so I know if I want to do it or not. But what about praying the prayer, Lord, I want your will before I know what your will is. I want your way before I know what your way is. The result, this is what I love, is Exaltation. The principle of, of this is simply this, is humble yourself. Scripture says this, um, verse number 10, excuse me, verse number 9. Therefore God has exalted him, bestowing upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The principle is this, is if we will humble ourselves underneath the hand of God, that he will be the one to exalt us. We don't have to exalt ourselves. First uh, Peter, Peter writes these words, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and let him lift you up. This culture says lift yourself up because we're worried nobody else is going to notice us. Can we get in the place where we can stop worrying about who's going to notice us and worrying about God noticing us? How do you get God to notice you? You humble yourself. And when you humble yourself, God is the one that will lift you up. God is the one that will give you the ovation that you're looking for. To give you the acceptance that your heart needs. God will be the one to lift you up up. So what do we do with all of this? I'm glad you've asked me. So worship band, if you can join me, we're going to prepare for communion in a second. But I want to give you three scriptures to wrap this up, and then we're going to release you today to enjoy a, a beautiful day outside. First of all, I want to give you Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says this. And calling the crowd to him, 
being Jesus, with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I don't know how else to say this. When it comes to humbling ourselves and having the mindset of Jesus, when it comes to really humbling ourselves and getting into the attitude of Jesus, we can't do that without this. Without following Jesus and denying ourselves. Without denying Jesus and turning our back on ourselves. I wrote it this way. Following Jesus is sometimes very, very, very costly. Jay, thank you for amening me, dude. Because that's not always the most popular thing to say. That following Jesus is sometimes very costly to our lives. Following Jesus sometimes means we got to deny things in our life that our body or our attitudes or our bitterness or our anger wants to do and say or the things that we think we deserve. Denying Jesus is very, very, very costly. There is a Russian poet named Visley Zukovsky, and he says this, we all have crosses to bear and we are constantly trying on different ones for a good fit. We want a cross that fits the lifestyle we want. We want a cross that fits the mode of life that we want. We want a cross that fits a type of Jesus that we want. Um, listen, we can't choose to choose the type of Jesus that we want. We can't choose the American Jesus, or we can't choose this style Jesus, or that style Jesus. We need to choose Jesus and everything that comes with it. And what comes with it sometimes is denying some things in our lives. Sometimes it's denying some mindsets that we want to have some attitudes that we want to carry. Because anybody that was carrying a cross, get this, anybody carrying a cross was headed toward execution. You're like, man, this is not very fun preaching, Pastor Dave. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 through 23 says this, though through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God, having purified your souls, by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, knowing one another earnestly from a pure heart, since having been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We follow Jesus, and the scripture says that we do it with obedience, which leads me to the last one, I'll shut up. Hebrews chapter two, verse 12, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what's the word? Joy. What's the series on? Joy that was set before him and endured the cross. So we've been thinking, we're in a series called Joy, and we really haven't mentioned joy all that much because understand that Jesus showed humility. The mindset of Jesus in showing humility did it with joy, knowing that joy was going to be the ultimate result for it. Jesus had what the title of the message is, Joy Thinking. I'm going to go through things that are not going to be the most pleasant. I'm going to deal with things that are not going to be the most fun things to deal with. I'm also going to get to engage into a plan that is beyond anything that us humankind expected, but we desperately needed. And he did it all with joy. Why do we humble ourselves in the presence of God? Because there is joy in it. And there's not just joy in it, there's joy on the other side. I don't know if you've ever had that moment in life where you obeyed God in something and maybe you struggled, but on the other side you're like, wow, 
That's why God wanted me to do this. This is why God had this going on. This is why God put this in place. You know what? Because if God would have told us in the beginning, we would have asked God to tell somebody else. That's what Moses tried. That's what I tried. My sister is better with people. People liked her better. God called me to minister. I'm like, choose Rachel. People seriously like her better. Listen, if we saw on the other side, we probably would get a little bit scared away, but no, there's joy on the other side. There's joy in the morning, Scripture says. There's joy that's there. We humble ourselves and take on that mind and attitude of Jesus and let there be a joy that's set before.